The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, everybody. It's Kat Sadler, and this is It Sure Is a Beautiful Day. I've spent decades in TV broadcasting and conducted hundreds, if not thousands, of interviews in the span of my career. And on this show, the conversations continue. My goal is that every episode feels entirely brand new, but also like coming home. Let's get into it. Hey, hey, hey. It sure is a beautiful day. I'm pumped. I'm excited. We got some big news today and I have an amazing guest today also. Ah, So glad you guys are here. I am Kat. And first things first, a little business for y'all. We got merch. We've got merch. We got merchandise. Hey, I've always wanted to say that. That's my little jingle. Um, You know, we launched this podcast in May of this year. I knew right away everybody that listened needed a It Sure Is a Beautiful Day mug. We've got mugs and they're cute and they're hopefully inspiring. And it's just, you know, something for you to grab and sip some sunshine. You know what I mean? A reminder that, you know, every day can be a beautiful day. That kind of sets the tone and energy for the day. So we've got a mug. We've got a cute little crew sweatshirt. We've got a tote and we've even got a beach towel. So go online, go to the Instagram. You'll see it everywhere. I'm linking to everything. I'm just thrilled that it's out and I hope that you enjoy it and I hope that you love it and I hope that you spread the word. That would mean so, so much to me. And not to guilt you into buying anything, but it's my birthday. That's all I want for my birthday, August 24th, turning another year older today. Maybe you can hear the joy in my voice. It's birthday month. I'm a Virgo. I'm just really all in my feelings in the best of ways, practicing gratitude and just just thankful to be alive, alive and well. So Welcome to the show. Um, today's guest, you know, she is just turning into one of my favorite people. I had not really discovered Ariel Lore until I became a member of the Dear Media family. She is known as The Blonde Files. She has a website. She has a, a very popular Instagram, and she also has a podcast of the same name. And her story, her story is honestly, what is so intriguing. I mean, if you love health and if you love wellness and you love learning new things, that is really the the core of her shares. She's talking with so many experts and she walks the walk. She's trying all of the new things. She's talking with doctors, everything about gut health, mind, gut connection, what works, what doesn't, what's BS, what we need to know. So she works very much on her inner beauty, but she's also equally honest about what she does in regards to her outer beauty. She's tried a lot of various procedures and yes, plastic surgery, but she's one of those people who tells all and then, you know, shares all about the experience and what it is really like and what are the risks and what works and what doesn't. So she's just really fun to follow. And I was able to have a really nice conversation with her today. But in regards to her story, as you'll hear in a moment, I mean, what what a story of resilience and survival, really. Ariel was very, very under the control of drugs and alcohol for a period of her later teens and early 20s to the point of almost losing her life. So we'll get into that a little bit as well. Um, A kind of well-rounded conversation. We touch on a lot of things, but I'm just so grateful for, for her friendship and for her time and for coming on. It sure is a beautiful day. And I think she'll inspire you and She's just a reminder, you know, we are we are not defined by our bad choices. We are not defined by our past. You know, any day is a good day to wake up and choose to be exactly what you want to be. And she's doing that. 
So you kick ass, girl. Here it is, my conversation with Ariel. I know that so many of your fans and your audience are kind of dying to hear how you're doing because you've really been through it lately. And I should just tell everyone that you and I have been kind of trying to connect and and get you here on my show this time, but you've had a real harrowing experience. How is the foot? I don't know that I would call it like harrowing per se. Well, you tell (laughs) me. I feel like, I feel like, um, with, with everything going on now, I'm like, oh, I feel like silly even talking about my foot, you know? Um, but yes, it has been a little bit of a debacle. You know, I just feel like I have to put it out there. I'm like not showing up as my best self today because I Mm. have been dealing with this issue. So I'll rewind a little bit. I fell in Greece like a month ago almost five weeks ago, actually. Mm. And I was stepping into a water taxi and I missed a step and I landed directly on my toe and it just popped. And it was like, I knew something was wrong. I thought that I broke it. And at the Mm. time we were on this tiny island that had a population of 500 and no cars, only donkeys, one doctor (laughs) and like 70 churches. And they were like, if we, if somebody gets hurt, we just go to church. So I felt like, you know, even if I broke it, what are they going to do? Throw me over a donkey or a mule and take me to the town doctor. And, you know, they don't have x-rays or anything. So I iced it, wrapped it. It was pretty fine the rest of the trip. And then I came home and I am stubborn and defiant. And even though it was bothering me, I was like, I'm just going to work out and modify my workouts. And I'm driving here and there and running around and going about life. And it started getting worse and worse. So long story short, last week I got an MRI. I have a little broken bone. I have a torn ligament and I've been forced to slow down. And this is a theme in my life that I'm sure we'll get into where it takes some kind of external thing sometimes to get me to um, chill out. So interesting. Um, Well, I love that you already set that up with a little bit of perspective. I've been talking with a lot of people in just recent days with what is going on in the world. You, You hate to kind of like obsess about something that, you know, isn't taking you out, right? But it's certainly an inconvenience. And, you know, I was going to ask you anyway, and it sounds like what you're alluding to for people who don't know you or don't listen to the Blonde Files podcast or haven't really dialed into your world, meditation is such a part, an integral part of your life and your anchor and your foundation. So how have you been dealing? So you just said, I'm not feel like, I don't feel like I'm showing up as my best self. So how Mm -hmm. has this been affecting your, your energy and your, and your daily minute to minute? I feel like in some ways it's been a little bit detrimental only because it's frustrating and it's easy to feel a little bit dejected when you can't do the things that you'd normally do. And it's my driving foot. So I feel like I don't have autonomy all of a sudden and it can just be hard at the same time. I have enough experience, I think, in my life, at least in recent years since I got sober and everything, to know that there's always a lesson in everything. There's always a gift in everything, some kind of benefit that you wouldn't think initially. And so I'm trying to come at it from that perspective. Like, okay, I have to accept this. I have to slow down. I have to cancel some trips and um, ease back on some work and whatnot. But what is this teaching me and what can I learn from this? Mm -hmm. So I I think that attitude is definitely a result of meditation. I was not really meditating. I was off my game a few weeks ago and I was like reacting and going into self-pity and that kind of victim mode and taking it out on other people close to me. And um, again, it just took this to be like, well, I'm, I'm not leaving the house today, so I can squeeze in my two 20-minute meditations and then I can see what I can do from here, how I can be useful to other people instead of sitting here thinking about myself 24-7. So, Isn't that interesting? I'm such a believer of that also, where the universe just sometimes says, sit your ass down. It's just like literally, and but it's it's a nice place to be when you can recognize that instead of just like you said, being drowned in your own pity, and and because that can snowball too. I mean, the minute you 
give over to that, then it's, that can be a dark, dark path, a a deep, very long one uh, that is, is not a good place to be. Mm -hmm. You know, as you were saying that about your foot, I really did want to spend a little time getting to know your past because, you know, here we are talking about, uh, as you call it, a little broken bone. But what people might not know is that, I mean, you were near death at one point in your life with your addiction and you spent many, many months like contemplating whether you even wanted to be alive and whether you wanted to be or not, your health was deteriorating to the point that you might not have even had a choice. You were having seizures because your health was just declining so, so much. So can you just give people, I know it's such a long story, but it's such a, an important story because it's, it's the, the arc of your life and so much of, of why you are where you are now. But I know you were raised in, in Rhode Island and the way you describe it, you know, you had a really like fairy tale almost existence and you had all the things they say we need to be happy, but you were not happy. You were quite miserable and you turn to drugs and alcohol to numb out. So can you just share a little bit of that with us and how ultimately you woke up from that? Yeah. So like you said, I did kind of have this idyllic upbringing. I don't think I felt really unhappy at the time. I think that when I I look back on it now, which I have often, I can see the changes and I can see how especially in high school, I became just really uncomfortable in my skin, which a lot of people feel. And that doesn't make them an addict or an alcoholic. But I think that combined with the fact that I am sensitive, I tend to run a little bit anxious. I tend to think about myself a lot if I'm not doing certain things every single day. All of that kind of compounded together just resulted in me feeling really uncomfortable and feeling like everybody else kind of had the manual and I didn't really. And so I found alcohol in high school and I was just drinking socially, but it always affected me a little bit differently than it affected other people. Like I was always that chick that was like blacking out and waking up in my car or waking up in the hospital or waking up in strange places, you know, coming home, projectile vomiting. Like I just, even though my friends were drinking pretty heavily at the time too, and we were teenagers, late teenagers, we were experimenting. It just was doing something a little bit different to me than other people. And I loved it. You know, most people like if they, I don't know, wake up in the hospital or they come home with the worst hangover ever. I remember one time I was so hungover, I fainted, I think in front of my parents. And for a lot of people, that would be a deterrent. Like maybe I need to not drink or like really scale it back. And I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> Whoa, like by amazing, what do you mean? What did you, why? Like, like you didn't see the harm. You just only focused on the high. I think the harm was just worth the benefits that I was getting from it. Alcohol did for me what nothing else in the world could do for me at that point, which was it made me feel comfortable in my skin. It made me not feel anxious. I felt confident. I felt like I could escape a little bit. I was in a really messy, toxic relationship. And so I could kind of escape that and deal with those emotions. And I just I just had no coping skills, I think, in life at that time. And it wasn't anybody's fault. You know, my parents were very present and I had been in therapy for a long time. And I just, for whatever reason, when I found alcohol, it was the solution that I was looking for. And I was like, I will take whatever consequences come along with this because it was my medicine. And I really chased that to the gates of insanity, really. Um, So that was, you know, I got a DUI not long after I started drinking and that kind of set in motion going to rehabs and I would get out and try to get my life together. And I always focused on the externals. Like if I can just get the job, if I can just get the apartment or get back in school, then everything will be okay. And in my experience, um, sometimes those things did happen and the drinking would sometimes be okay which was the really insidious thing. I could go out to dinner and have a couple glasses of wine for months. And then inevitably that one time comes where I have one drink and I'm like off to the races, you know? Mm. So there was really no telling when I started drinking, like where or when or how I was going to stop. It could be an hour later or a week later. Do you want big, beautiful, effortless waves? And especially right now, 
just in time for heading back to the office or back to school, or maybe you're just out and about more now that the world has opened up, the Con Air Double Ceramic Waver is designed with three barrels for deep, continuous waves. Plus, the double ceramic technology provides even and consistent heat for fast styling and those long-lasting waves. Instant heat up is nice for us busy ladies. Also, there are 30 heat settings for every hair type. And make sure to try the Turbo Heat Boost for those difficult-to-style spots. So you see, the wide range of heat options lets you customize styling. It's really fun. And you get all those flawless results you desire. Trust, you're going to be the envy of all of your friends. With full flowing waves now so quick and easy to create right at home, you'll always be selfie ready on the job or on campus or ooh, on that dinner date, right? <laughs> Skip the salon, save time, big, beautiful waves at home. No salon appointment needed. I mean, what's not to love? And did I mention you get your waiver delivered to your door? Ordering this essential beauty tool for beautiful bombshell waves is easy. Go to conair.com and search waiver. How many times were you in and out of rehab? I went to four rehabs and one detox. So my family, I put them through so much. I don't know how they didn't give up on me. And they even said, I think on the second to last one, like, this is it. You know, we cannot help you anymore. Alcoholism, addiction is traumatizing for the person who's going through it, but it's just as traumatizing for the, the people who are close to them. And when I was 28, when I finally stopped, you were talking about where I kind of ended up. I was having seizures all the time. I was in and out of consciousness. I was not leaving my apartment for months. I was kind of in a months-long blackout. There were a lot of really shady things happening and really traumatic things happening. And I don't think I wanted to die. I just knew that I couldn't stop. I was physically dependent on substances. I had been to rehab enough times to know that if I stopped cold turkey, you know, the seizures could kill me. Um, so I was just taking whatever I could get. And I felt so ashamed that I didn't want to ask for help again. And people had told me like, this is it. So I was embarrassed, ashamed. So I really just kind of gave up. And I don't even think that I was coherent enough to know what I was doing or, or not doing. I just would come to drink, snort, whatever, take a pill, and then you know, unconsciousness and then come to same thing. Um, My family did a wellness check. They like broke through my window and took me to the hospital and I somehow got out of the hospital and kept doing what I was doing. And finally, my family flew out and showed up at my door and so dramatic. I dropped and had a grand mal seizure right when I opened the door. And that was it though. You know, I always say like I was kind of struck sober in that moment because it took that to kind of wake me up. and. You know, the fog was clearing for months, but I knew in that moment when I came to in the hospital that like, without a doubt, I cannot drink again. Whereas in the other times in the past, I had that little sliver of doubt that like, well, maybe if I just drink wine at dinner, then I can still drink. Or maybe if I, I don't know. I mean, you name it, I tried it basically. So this might be difficult to answer or maybe there is no answer and I'm just trying to understand and fully, but, you know, hearing you describe addiction and I'm sure it's different from everyone. Um, but, but the physical part of it where it's like, you could not operate without a drink, but at the same time you were saying you were just so uncomfortable in your skin. So when you came out of it and you knew you were done and then the work begins, was the work more about the actual detoxing of of the actual alcohol and the physical components that, you know, take over our bodies? Or was the work more, how do I feel good in my skin? Or was it both? It was mainly the latter. So initially, obviously, you have to detox the drugs and alcohol. And this weird thing happens in rehab. I've seen it happen to so many other people. And it happened to me each time that I went where you go in your life is in shambles. I mean, I had nothing, no friends, no 
car. I had that apartment that was like squalor, um, no job. And I get into rehab after nearly dying. And after five days, I'm like, I need to, I need to go get back to my life. <laughs> and, um, and like, I really don't, they were like, no, you're going to stay here. I was still in detox at that time. And they said, you're going to go to, to treatment and you're going to stay there for at least three months. And it just seems like this insurmountable thing. But I was really willing because I was so desperate to just take direction. And I think that's such a key component to it. You don't have to know what to do or how to do it. You just have to be willing to listen to other people and maybe take their suggestions to heart and apply those to your life. But so there was the acute detox phase, which, you know, looking back on it now, like I really don't even remember the first month. So thank God I didn't leave it five days. Mm-hmm. Um, once the fog cleared, there was a lot of work to do because what I've learned about alcoholism and addiction is that it's really not the alcohol that's the problem. The alcohol is the symptom of what's going on underneath. And what was going on below the surface was everything that I told you about in the beginning, fear, anxiety, self-centeredness, like discomfort, just restlessness, irritability, feeling awkward. Also, if you're out there drinking and using, you are kind of accumulating a lot of traumas and shame and all of that along the way too. Oh. So you just kind of, there. It, it's like an endless cycle. So Isn't you drink. That true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you drink to numb whatever. And then you do things that you regret when you're drinking and you're embarrassed and you're ashamed and you can't stop. So then you have to drink to cover that up. And so there was a lot of work that, you know, I still do to this day to not not feel that stuff, but to be able to deal with life on life's terms. Well, I think what you're saying is so interesting because for people listening, I know you don't have to be labeled an alcoholic. You don't even have to be an addict, but for any and all of us who feel all the things you're describing, by the way, who doesn't live with things they regret or who doesn't have some kind of shame or who doesn't try at some point to numb out and cover how anxious they feel or how insecure they feel or how inadequate we feel. I think most people struggle with all of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, Lucky for a lot of them, they maybe aren't a full-on addict and maybe they're not at the extreme that you were, but you mentioned kind of undoing all those things. So through all of your learning and all of your discovery in this whole journey. I mean, what are some of the things, because it's not alcohol anymore, what are the things that are working for you that have gotten to you to this point that might, you know, people might be able to try and use and integrate into their lives just to manage all those those things that you were talking about? I mean, I think first and foremost, community was huge. And, you know, I found a community of people who also don't drink and who have been through it before. And just to be able to speak candidly about the things that I was feeling with people who had felt the same. I mean, I, especially in treatment, I met people, I had no idea who they were, nothing in common whatsoever. But when you speak one-on-one, like you speak the same language because you just understand each other on a different level. So that was huge. And, you know, I really, I really felt so alone in my drinking. So the antidote to that was community. That's huge. I mean, no matter whether you are part of a program or not, you know, I think just finding people that you can be authentically yourself with and have these conversations is so important. And that was another thing. Like I was drinking and and I had to drink to put up this facade. And that was really keeping me sick um, because I wasn't being my authentic self. So that community, again, of like-minded people really helped me to peel the layers back from that. Mm-hmm. The other thing was, well, there were a lot of things, but another huge one was just connecting to something bigger than me. So whether you're religious or whether it's just the universe or whatever it is that you can connect to, finding that and kind of developing a relationship with that through like prayer and meditation, that was huge for me. Mm -hmm. What else? Meditation, obviously, on its own, which I talked about. Journaling, so many things. Service, you know, and it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be like volunteer service, but 
you know, let me call three people today and ask them how they're doing so that I'm not thinking about myself and my foot, you know, (laughs) Um, and and like poor me. So a lot of getting out of self through talking to other people, being around other people, praying, meditating, you know, all these things like directing my energy outwards rather than inwards was really huge for me. Well, isn't it interesting what you're saying? And I'm going to, I'm going to cut past several years and and bring us to the present day, but so much of your livelihood now is in service. Now, mm-hmm. of course, you're fascinated and interested in health and wellness and you can't get enough and you, you're so curious about all of this, which I think is a reflection of self-love, really. Like when we're really taking care of our bodies and we're really loving ourselves, um, that's you know maybe where that comes from. But, but you're serving others because you're getting all this information. And this is, you know, this is your business now where you're, you're acquiring all of this really important, vital information for all of us to essentially live our best lives. So what a, what a place to land. And I know you've done the work after all these years, but I think that's what's so fascinating about your story and probably makes it even more powerful and poignant because you are coming from a place of, pain or, you know, adversity, or you've overcome so much. And now you get to be on this platform, several platforms, and just not only share your story, but now share all this wonderful information and you do it in such an authentic way. So bravo. Thank you. Bravo, bravo. (laughs) Okay. Serious question. Do you guys know the difference between an antiperspirant and a deodorant? Well, antiperspirants contain aluminum, which forms a plug in your sweat glands to stop you from sweating. Native deodorant does not contain aluminum or parabens or sulfates. It's vegan and never tested on animals. Native just works to keep you smelling fresh, baby. Native deodorant is made with ingredients that you've actually heard of, like coconut oil and shea butter. And here's the thing, making the switch to an aluminum-free deodorant does not mean you have to sacrifice on performance. Seriously, Native will keep you smelling and feeling fresh all day long. They've got more than 10 scents, they're classics, and then these fun rotating seasonal scents. You're guaranteed to find one that you love. And if you've got sensitivities, Native offers an unscented option and a baking soda-free formula. And if you're like me and you're trying to cut down on your plastic use, Native even has a deodorant made of 100% paperboard packaging. I switch between the eucalyptus and mint Native and the coconut and vanilla Native. I can't wait to hear your faves. You are going to love Native as much as I do. And right now, you can save 20% on your first purchase. Go to nativedo.com slash beautiful or use promo code beautiful at checkout. That's nativedo.com slash beautiful or use promo code beautiful at checkout to save 20% on your first purchase. Let's talk about food a little bit because I want to talk a little bit about food and I want to talk a little bit about exercise. And then I want to talk a little bit about some of these procedures and all the things that you're so um, open about. Okay. But the food piece, you know, it's funny. You said earlier, what did you say was your medicine? Because food is thy medicine now, but drinking was your medicine back then. Booze was thy medicine. Yeah. (laughs) Booze was thy medicine then, but food is thy medicine now. I think you will agree with with me on that. And I didn't always know that either. My food journey is all over the place. But um, because you have access to so many experts and because you have all of these conversations with the, the best of the best, the elite in nutrition and all of the things, what would you say is like the most important key thing to keep in mind when we think about food and what goes in our body? Like what's top of mind for you that that stands out that is just key? It's hard to choose just one thing. And my perspective and my opinion on this has changed so much from when I started as a result, largely in part due to talking to so many different experts. And I kind of cherry pick, you know, what works for me and what doesn't. But I think there are a few components. I mean, I I think that my approach used to be really rigid and I had to be super strict and I had this huge list of things to avoid and clean eating. And I still believe in to the best of your ability, 
eating unprocessed foods. I think you get into a little bit of like a sticky territory because of access and all of that where, you know, labeling things clean or bad or dirty. You know, I I try to avoid that as much as I can now, even though I did it a lot in the past. But for myself, I try to, you know, eat as much unprocessed food as I can. I had Dr. Emeryn Mayer. He's a professor at UCLA Med School on recently, and he's a neuroscience neuroscientist and a gastroenterologist. And he's been researching the gut-brain connection for decades. And he was fascinating. And he said that if you're feeding your gut microbes, the rest will take care of itself. Mm. And I've had a few gut health experts come on and say that, researchers and doctors who have said that, you know, you shouldn't focus so much on macronutrients, protein, fiber, fat, but micronutrients, polyphenols, prebiotics, you know, what are you feeding your gut bacteria? That's the most important thing. And if your gut bacteria is thriving, you know, the rest of your systems are going to be in balance. So that's another thing that I try to do. And then... Wait, I'm not even going to stop you there because I mean, that was definitely on my list was let's talk about gut health because Mm -hmm. I don't know nearly as much as you do, but I'm the one overriding thing I continue to hear about or read about is the gut, the gut, the gut, and the importance of, you know, even hearing people say it's ultimately will be revered like our brain as just as important to our body and the brain gut connection, which you just mentioned, but you just said prebiotic versus probiotic. I don't even know the difference. So what is the difference? I mean, you, and you just mentioned a couple sciencey things that I don't even know what that is. So <laughs> for the people listening, like it, it, what, break that down just a hint more for us. So probiotics are the actual bi- bacteria. So if you hear about a gut being in dysbiosis or having an overgrowth of bad bacteria. Probiotics are supplementing the good bacteria essentially to your gut. Prebiotics are the food for the good bacteria. So Mm. if you're feeding those, then they're going to multiply and thrive essentially. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So be good to the gut. That's huge. Be good to the microbes. I also try to incorporate a lot of fiber. So... I used to, back in the day, I used to count macros and like be really into dieting and breakdowns of protein, carbs, and fat. And now I really just try to pay attention to fiber. Mm. And I think that, especially in the US, I think women are getting maybe a third of the fiber that they should be getting. And, you know, we're also riddled with gut issues. And I'm passionate about this because I went through it. And when I was newly sober and for a couple of years thereafter, I had debilitating gut issues. And that carried over into things like insomnia and anxiety and skin issues, mood issues. Not to mention the fact that when you're having you know, horrendous bloating and digestive issues, you don't want to go out and be social. And so it can be very isolating. And so I experienced that. And at that time, it was hard because I... I wanted food to be the cause and I wanted food to be the cure. And this kind of goes into another another thing that I think is so important when it comes to food. You know, I really wasn't looking at other lifestyle factors. And so that was when my diet got really restrictive. A lot of diets for inflammatory issues in the gut are, they tell you to eliminate foods that have prebiotic fiber in them. So in turn, you're starving the good bacteria in your gut it's just, it's so complicated. I could do a whole episode on this. Again, um, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I got really stressed out around eating. And that's another thing that I've learned is that with all these labels and with, you know, we live in LA, everything's gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, corn-free, refined sugar-free, this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that people have, especially with Instagram, just developed a lot of food fear and a lot of food guilt. And if you're going to sit down to a meal and you're like, well, I can't eat that because that has um, grains and this has soy. And I'm just thinking of this because I had sushi last night. You know, it doesn't matter what you're eating. Your body is going to react and you're going to probably have an adverse reaction, whether it's bloating or, you know, discomfort, whatever it is. So I really learned how to be a lot less restrictive and just a lot um, more deliberate and like mindful and present when I'm eating. And that also made a huge difference mm. for me. I love that. You're reminding me of, I mean, it's different, but but somewhat the same. When my first son was born, I was trying to breastfeed him. And I had such a turbulent time. I'm talking like 
the nipples were blistered and I was bleeding all over the place. And I felt all of this desire to, you know, give my son, you know, the best possible nutrients, which is natural and what you're told over and over again, which is probably true scientifically, but I couldn't do it. So every time we went to feed, he was screaming, I was hurting. It was this terrible, terrible feeling because I felt like a failure and he wasn't getting what he needed. And so every time we would go to have mealtime, it was torture. And eventually someone, you know, gave me the advice or I like, give him the stinking bottle because it, it is not also just what you're putting in your body, but it is the, the emotion and the ritual of what it means to eat. Right. So mm-hmm. once I finally did give him what I thought was the possible best formula on the market, then those feedings became really wonderful and we were bonding and there was not that tug and that pull and that terrible stress. So I know what you mean in that the ritual of just eating. That's why one of my pet peeves is when people stand when they eat. I can't stand it. I'm like, <laughs> sit down and eat your food because it's, it really suppo- is. So there is that component also on top of, you know, what we're putting in our bodies, right? Yeah. Like revere the the ritual of just the opportunity to feed yourself, I think yeah. is really big too. The other thing I know that you've talked a lot about, and I think is can be very controversial is this intuitive eating. So, um, how, how do you feel about that at this point? Hmm. Um, I mean, I, I feel like, let's see. And or fasting. I suppose that's the word I really mean. You know, there's this controversy about, you know, that's what what I really mean. Intuitive. Thank you. There's (laughs) intuitive eating and there's intermittent fasting, but Uh sometimes intuitive eating is kind of tied to that because it's kind of like, don't eat until your body tells you, you know, that Mm -hmm. seems to be kind of a trend right now, but there's a lot of pushback on that because, you know, a lot of dietitians are saying that is terrible. So Mm -hmm. is that a part of your personal regimen right now? I tried intermittent fasting and I found that a few hours before I was quote unquote allowed to start eating, I would start feeling like I was crashing and it was very stressful for me. Mm -hmm. And so my philosophy now is like, if it stresses you out, don't do it. If it doesn't feel good, don't do it. And I do like, especially during quarantine, my husband and I started eating earlier and earlier. I mean, we eat at like five o'clock now. (laughs) So I'm like done. I've had dinner, dessert, everything by like 536. And then, you know, in the morning, usually I get up, work out, take my shower and whatnot. And then I eat at maybe 10. So I do kind of, technically do a little intermittent fasting, but I don't call it that. And it's not really intentional. It's just the way my my schedule is. I had the founder, like the actual founder of intuitive eating on my podcast, Evelyn Triboli. She started the movement like 25, 30 years ago. She wrote books on it and it's kind of been co-opted a little bit. But I think at its core, you know, the philosophy is really important. And I think that it's so hard with social media because, and I do this too, I post what I eat in a day and I try to like do it for recipe inspiration. But I don't know if you're on TikTok. On TikTok, it's like, for some reason, my algorithm keeps showing me like 17-year-old girls, every video of what I eat in a day and it's maybe like 500 calories and then, you know, they get millions of views and all the comments are like, oops, my light just fell. (laughs) Light down. What? And that's being celebrated 500 calories a day. All the comments are good. Yeah. And I think like, I think they just don't really know, you know, I don't think that they're even doing it intentionally. I think they're just like, I have grapes for breakfast and I have um, like greens for lunch and I have, you know, barely anything for dinner. And then all the girls in the comments are asking questions. And, and I think that there's this tendency to want to emulate the people that you aspire to on social media and that, that includes doing what their diets and eating whatever they eat. And you're completely overriding your intuition at that point. And, you know, Evelyn, when she was on my show, was talking about it's like it just completely breaks your trust that you have with yourself. So when I was tracking macros and doing the whole diet thing, like it took a long time to repair that trust with myself and my body. But I don't know that it's really something that you can tell someone else. I think you kind of have to go through it and, you know, experience it yourself. All of that is to say that I think intuitive eating and there are other names for it, but really like the principle at its core 
doing what feels good, making decisions that support your health and vitality and that you enjoy because it should be enjoyed, like you were saying, you know, that's intuitive. And I think we've just gotten so far away from it that it's kind of this like skill that you have to hone a little bit, especially Mm -hmm. when you've been wrapped up in diet culture for so long. Yeah. Well, I want everyone listening. I mean, it's probably more powerful if they go to your podcast because you talk about, and there's so many episodes dedicated to food and there's a lot about exercise and they can learn more of you and, and, and what you've kind of gone through, um, as it pertains to those things. But I, the other kind of piece of, of your business and your shares really has become also this procedural quest for, for frankly, physical beauty, right? So like you guys, Ariel is so honest and you're so open and you tell it like it is, which I completely respect. And you, you know, you often go through these processes and then come back and report back, you know, Mm -hmm. how people can experience it um, for themselves and what not to do and all of that, which is great. Let's talk about this eyebrow lift because I know I only have so much time with you. And I'm, I, I know that you have talked about this a lot, but I, I love that you're like, I read something the other day where you're like, do not do this. And that is not worth your money. Um, and it's such a fad, you know, speaking of Instagrams and, and young women going online and thinking that, oh, I have to look like Bell Hadid and I have to have the fox eye and the cat eye and all this thing. For you, it was more personal. You had what you call hooded lids and you looked tired and, and whatever. Explain the procedure you had because I also have my own itty bitty story and I want to discuss this a little bit with you. I think you're far more of an expert, but <laughs> what'd you do and and tell me how to get it? <laughs> okay. So yes, I you did your research, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes, I, a few years ago, felt like... Every time I looked in the mirror, my eyes were hooded and they always had been and there's nothing wrong with hooded eyes. Don't fall into the trap of the Instagram face and the Bella Hadid and the Kendall. Things go in and out of trend. So, you know, that's another thing that we have to keep in mind. Like a few years down the line, there's going to be another look. So if you your eyebrows are like Spock, you might be a little bit disappointed. Right. Um, so for me, you know, I just felt like you said, like I looked in the mirror and the hooding had, after I turned 30, become way more pronounced to the point where like, even with Botox, it was just, I had this downturn look to my eyes that made me feel like I looked really tired and kind of sad when it was like the complete opposite of how I felt inside. And I think, especially after everything that I went through and getting sober, I think I did, I, I kind of wanted to like compensate for that time lost and the time when I was a shit show and, you know, just a disaster and look as good as I felt inside. And mm. so I ended up getting an endoscopic brow lift. This is where they go in at the hairline. People probably can't see me, but it's like if you put your finger up, directly from the end of your eyebrow, like kind of a little bit above the temple in the hairline. They go in with like a little endoscope. They make tiny incisions and then they can detach the forehead, (laughs) your face, and lift (laughs) it. My big ass forehead. I'm like, ah! Your eyes are getting wide. Detach the forehead. It's it's, they cut your skin above your eyebrows. No. How do they detach the forehead? Oh, through that endoscopic. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay. Through the little incision. Um, There are different kinds. I think they, I don't know if they even do these anymore where they can cut the scalp kind of like ear to ear, which I I think sounds a little barbaric. There's so many better ways to do it now. So they just use these tiny little scopes and they go in, detach the forehead and the muscle and everything and they suspend it and reattach. And it really gives you this scarless, very natural lift that just makes the whole face look a lot more rested. It's not, I didn't get the Bella Hadid fox eyes. <laughs> um, no, you look amazing. You look wonderful. Thank you. Thank Looks you so great. much. I really wanted to like, just look like myself, just, mm-hmm. you know, refreshed, maybe like I did a few years prior. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are doctors and there are people who will go in and say like, I want my brow to be more lifted on the tail or be more elongated, like Kendall, you know, whatever. I just think the smart thing to do is to not really follow the trends and just follow your anatomy and how to best refresh that. So that's the endoscopic brow lift. (laughs) So how does that compare to the thread lift? Okay. Because guess what? 
I, I did it. I did you it. Did? I, and I've never said this publicly. I've only done Botox and I've only done, or versions of, and I've only done a little bit of filler here and there. I, a year ago, okay, got some advice like, oh, just do that for all the same reasons. Now, different reasons because I am... <clears throat> turning 47 <laughs> next week. And my actual physical face is starting to go south. And so for the same reasons where my eyes were just getting really hooded and I, they looked smaller and I looked more tired and all of that. I was just like, I just want to open up, open it up. And so mm-hmm. someone recommended that. And I mean, for maybe a week, it looked great. Mm-hmm. And then about a week later, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Like it didn't last. It did not last. And it was not cheap and it wasn't exactly comfortable either. So, yeah. So I got threads in my cheeks and I have to say, after having done multiple surgeries, I've done my nose, my brows, I've done, I just did fat transfer. I did a lip lift. Like this is all over the course of many years. The threads were by far the most traumatic thing I've ever done. <sighs> it is so freaking uncomfortable having them jam that cannula or whatever through your face and put a suture in there. It was like, I was shaking after for like hours. I just couldn't believe it. And I had a similar experience in that, well, I was very swollen for a couple of weeks. I remember my husband had an event. He was speaking on a panel and I had to go like two days after I got them. And in your face, you can't move your face, but I had to schmooze before. And I remember one of them popped out. And I could feel it poking through my cheek. And I was like, oh my God, this is just the most uncomfortable thing I've ever done. And I think that places that do threads need to be a lot more forthcoming in the just, you know, managing expectations and being upfront about what they can and can't achieve. Because especially with Instagram, I see so many places post a picture of Bella Hadid or Kendall Jenner or whoever is like the trendy you know, model du jour and say that they're doing threads and, you know, it's just so misleading. And so people are going there. It's so expensive, like many thousands of dollars for barely any result. And especially like, I mean, they can be really dangerous too. I mean, I see people putting them in their nose. And if you do put it, I don't know if you did it in your temples, but that can leave scar tissue. And if it doesn't heal right, I just had a girl on TikTok because I did a video on this yesterday say that she had some kind of infection. One of them got infected in her face and it was infected for like six months and she was on all these medications. And it can, you know, I think that they can cause more harm than good. Mm-hmm. And people, just aren't really aware of that because nobody is talking about it. And I never really wanted to be the poster child for plastic surgery. (laughs) I feel like it really plays into the archetype, (laughs) you know, but I just kind of felt like, I mean, I'm kind of a girl's girl and I just felt like no one's talking about this. And by the time I did my first procedure, I had been getting all the filler and all that kind of minimally invasive things. And I looked not good. You know, it it was very, my face was big and puffy and kind of weighed down. And so, you know, I'm not trying to encourage people to get surgery ever when I'm talking about it, but I would rather like do something once, have it done well, and then not mess with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I applaud you for your honesty and you know, I've always kind of come from a similar place in that. I mean, look at you, look at the the introspection and the work you've done. You've done the internal, um, but you also care about the external and and that's okay. And I think you're being very responsible in that you're putting all that information out there and you're being so authentic about it. So I think there's a lot of power in that for sure. And I do want to encourage everybody to go to your your website and your show because I mean, it's all kind of there. Like I just, you know, there's a wealth of information there, but but just to wrap up, because I'm just think I am thinking about the the you know the external and that what some would say is our vanity and you know it's easy to be superficial about these things. But you're so careful with also what you put in your body and tending to what your body needs to be its strongest, healthiest self, and all of that. So now that you've kind of covered all these things as it pertains to happiness and as it pertains to being in your skin today, like what what brings you the most joy and the most peace? Like when are you at your 
actual most comfortable, most comfortable self? A really good question. I mean, kind of acutely right after I meditate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's like a piece. I mean, I just did my afternoon one before we did this and it really kind of has the same effect as taking a Xanax on me. I mean, it changes me on such a cellular level where I go into it frazzled and my mind is racing and my mind often races during meditation. That's okay. But afterwards, I am just zen AF. (laughs) Um, So eloquent. But, you know, I think, I think like ultimately I feel the best when I'm getting out of myself. My meditation is my time to be still with myself, but I feel the most fulfilled, the most at peace, the most useful, all of that when I'm doing something for somebody else, focusing on the people around me, you know, trying to do something nice for my husband, trying to reach out to someone and see how they're doing today, doing whatever I can at work. Not that I'm like some saint or anything, but really directing that energy outward. And it's often completely contradictory to what I feel like doing because I would love to be in bed, like watching housewives or something and isolating. And But it's always that contrary action that really brings me the absolute most the most benefits that I could ever imagine. So I love that. I love that. And I think you just described a beautiful day. I think I was going to ask you what constitutes Mm -hmm. a beautiful day, but I think you just kind of said that. And that is so, so true. And such a good reminder for people. There's so much noise in our heads and everybody can relate to that and the soundtrack and the the just the voices and the constant like narrative of our ego self all the time. Um, so thank you for being honest. I mean, the first thing you said when you got on here today is like, I'm just gotta be honest. I'm not feeling like my best self. Like I think if we did more of that and we're all just more vulnerable, I could have told you five things that just went wrong before I got here too. So, <laughs> but that's real life. And we're all yeah. just on this journey and we're all just doing our best, hopefully. And, and, and you know what? I don't think it's going to ever end. I think we're going to probably do this till our last days, but I'm kind of like up for it. I think it's mm-hmm. like, I think it's um, really, really cool. So I love what you're doing. I wish we had more thank time. You. I, I have know. to be out the door in six <laughs> minutes. So um, thank you for coming on and thank you so and much. Thank you. And, and best um, of luck with your foot. Thank you so much. Happy and, healing to you. <laughs> and I have to say, I've always loved your interview style and listening to you and watching you and everything. And it was a joy to be interviewed by you. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so, so much. Well, lots of love. Thank you. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. And a reminder, you can catch a brand new episode of It Sure Is a Beautiful Day every Tuesday. Please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And of course, I'd love to hear from you. So leave me a rating and leave me a review. Also, follow us on social media for all the behind the scenes action and more info. That's at I am Kat Sadler on Instagram and at ABD with Kat. Talk to you next Tuesday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.